Welcome to Sci-Fi Tech Talk, the podcast where we explore the technology of sci-fi. I'm Julie Keel, and with me today is Mike McPeak. Hello. And Jeff Sire. Hello, everybody. This episode, we're going to be covering the 2012 book, 2312. So 300 years in the future, basically. So the year is 2312. Scientific and technological advances have opened gateways to an extraordinary future. Earth is no longer humanity's only home. New habitats have been created throughout the solar system on moons, planets, and in between. But in this year, 2312, a sequence of events will force humanity to confront its past, its present, and its future. Uh, Just a a quick bit of background. This book, the reason we we started, or we were doing uh, an episode on this book is I went on vacation last fall. (laughs) And there's, it's a tiny little, you know, touristy town that has one independent bookstore with, you know, not a lot of books in there, and usually zilch for science fiction. And I went there, and other than all of the science fiction classics, you know, like, uh, oh gosh, you know, Space Odyssey and and um, you know, the Foundation, you know, some of those types of things that you would expect to be there, 1984, all that kind of stuff. Um, they had this book. 2312 and I'm like whoa it's a science fiction book at the little bookstore quick grab it and of course had zero time to read it during the rest of the week on vacation Um, so I just happened to pick it up and start uh, reading it a couple well at this point maybe a month ago and it was like 30 pages in it's like okay we have to do this for the podcast because this wasn't even on our radar you know we have episodes and topics picked out you know gosh for like two years in advance if we really wanted to scope it out but um this wasn't even on that list and i'm like no no we need to talk about this one so unlike many things we've done episodes on this one actually has some tech in it <laughs> lots of tech yeah. yeah. Oh, and the one that grabbed me the most, the one that's like, okay, no, we have to get this on the on the podcast is um Terminator. And Terminator is a city on Mercury, you know, the planet closest to the sun, the hot one. And what they've done because if you because it, it Mercury doesn't really rotate like Earth rotates, so you know, you you kind of have a a cycle of of um day and night, you know, heat and cool. Um, basically, one side of the planet, or it just it rotates so very slowly that, that anything that you would want to build or try and do on the planet, it just gets so hot because the sun is so close that it's really pretty much impossible. So what they did is they wound up building a city in a bubble on tracks, on, on like railroad tracks, that they called Terminator. And the reason it's called Terminator is because it's in that dusk and or dawn i think it would be it would be which way would it be they would be going towards they were escaping the sun going towards the dark if i remember right is that the right right yeah yeah so they would be going into the sunset all the time they would be at dusk all the time at terminator so they were kind of in that happy place between you know full-on boiling sun and absolute you know dark where it's cold so uh, wasn't it dawn for them all the time because Terminator uh, moved itself by the sun coming up would heat the rails and then it would push. But see, that's why I think it's actually sun. It would well, maybe it would be dawn because yeah, yeah, because what had happened that the rails would heat and they would expand, and in that expansion, it would push Terminator in front of them. 
So they would be, maybe you're right, it would be perpetually dawn, but they would never see the sunrise, basically. Right. You're right, it would be dawn, because it was the sun coming up that was pushing them forward. So, yes. That struck me as being incredibly dangerous. Oh, absolutely. If anything goes wrong... Which it does. Like, and things, everything breaks. Yes. And, uh, yeah, and if that system broke down, then you would have no time to fix it, and then the sun would be up, and er the entire city would be Right. And guess what? (laughs) It did. Yeah. 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 I I do. You you have this single point of failure that can be catastrophic. I think engineers tend to shy away from things like that. I don't know. Did this... Put, I mean, to me, it kind of seemed like the hubris of, you know, of their, they thought they're, they were te- so technologically smart that this would never happen. And it wasn't a uh, natural disaster. This was, you know, an attack and they had to be kind of smart to out, you know, out with them. But still, it was an attack that took them down. Yeah. And in, and in a universe where, um, <sighs> You know things go wrong, and especially like, like you say, attacks, political, national. I don't. I suppose they all boil down to being political issues, um, where you know people get mad at people. Um, that the idea of having a city in a bubble on a railroad track that expands according to the sun, and anything that would interfere with the motion of that city in a bubble on that track would be catastrophic. Wow, yeah, that's just kind of not. No, this see the thing that strikes me about that is being absolutely brilliant and also absolutely never going to happen is is like NASA space travel. How many redundancies do you have? How many fail safes? Oh. How many I mean, right. yeah, and here there's just one set of tracks that um, you know, if something happens to it, boom, you know, up in smoke literally. You think there must have been some backup system? That could, like a uh, some sort of mechanical thing they could have grabbed onto the tracks and just mechanically hauled them along on the track. Well, or, and it, um, and from what I understand of this of the situation that you know put this whole terminate city of Terminator at risk and you know catastrophic failure as it happened um, is that the, essentially the tracks in front of them were destroyed. It wasn't that. It didn't work. It's just like if your life depends on the rail and the rail isn't there, you know, it's like, it's like dry. It's like taking a train over, you know, one of those hundreds of foot high bridges and then having the bridge wash out. It's not that the, the you derailed. It's like there was no rail. Um, there's a difference between derailing well, and slipping off the rails and then derailing because you went nose diving into the river. But... Uh, you would still think, though, okay, couldn't they have, okay, if you can build a set of rails for this thing to travel on, couldn't you also have, like I say, what the cost of losing this thing would have been far less than to have, like, say, a backup system of just wheels that would come down, lift your up off the track, and keep it moving? I know. Um, as far as fail-safes go, you either lose your whole community or you spend money for this backup system that if the rails go bad you can just put it down maybe you have to have somebody driving it but at least get it past where you know the rails uh, are bad or parallel tracks with switches every now and then you sure. know um, that type of thing okay now the thing and we are jumping off into this book 
before we even set the, anything up. <laughs> but that's <laughs> fine because that's what we do here, you know. But um, the the there uh, eventually. Uh, for for people who don't read the book, and what that would probably describe most of you, um, the book essentially starts with this attack on Terminator. And one of the things that happens is, well, it actually starts with the death of somebody, and then it goes on to the attack on Terminator. But um, it, they discover that like uh, subway tunnels or other rail systems, they actually there was an underground tunnel that ran under the rails that ran around the planet Mercury, um, that that they took uh, shelter in and essentially walked their way back to the nearest station where, you know, back to safety. And the, the thing that, that was intriguing to read about that whole scenario is the, the question always comes to my mind, so how in the hell did this thing get built in the first place? You know, as much as we talk about fail-safes and whatever, somebody had to build the rail and somebody had to build Terminator. Um, so, you know, who was the one that first went down there and laid the first rails, you know, and, and how far did they get in one mercurial day before they had to take shelter? And, and so, again, what had happened apparently is that the the um, um, tunnels were, were built first, you know, so you, you took shelter from the sun on Mercury underground because that was the, the safest way to do that. And then they just started digging tunnels underneath. And then once they got that done, then they started the ra- started doing rails on the surface. And I, it, it crossed my mind at that point. It's like, why would you bother? Just build everything underground, too. You know, put your cities underground. Well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, a series of tubes, that would have been actually, I think, maybe a little bit more interesting, a little bit more practical. Just populate your tubes uh, under the ground there and... and or have a subway under the ground or something. Um, yeah, there's. I don't know. It's just that whole concept of the city really intriguing. But like, say, it just it didn't work well for me because it was for people who are supposed to be so smart. You have like you know this system with a single point of failure, and I would have thought there had been better ways. And are the you know apparently the population is so huge in this uh, in the galaxy that they have to settle on unhabitable planets because they're on Mercury, they're on Jupiter and Saturn, or the moons thereof, not on the planets themselves, but and well, they're, they're still not out of our solar system yet, so they're stuck with what we have, right? Right. So, yeah, they're, they're out of luck when it comes to Earth-like planets, because there's only one, and we've royally screwed that up. <laughs> so, right. Yeah, they're left to terraform the ones that can be terraformed, and then they just build habitats on the other ones. Yeah, and I found this book, you know, as much as it's really interesting from a technological standpoint, it's also interesting from a mm, sociological standpoint, I suppose. You know, the fact that Earth is still all screwed up, um, how Mars came to be this its own little thing and kind of independent, and then you had other things banding together to form a third, you know, leg well, to the stool and yeah that whole vision in 300 years it's it's interesting to me that um it's always rough when you put a date on things i mean the book 1984 is a, the best example of you know somebody who put a date on a book and then that date comes to pass well this one is 300 years in the future so there is that but i also think for all of the yeah this will never happened um, parts of this book, 300 years is probably a good time frame that if any of this stuff was going to happen, that's probably the, the right time frame for it to possibly happen. Because there are some, I mean, stuff changes 
quickly. Like a hundred years ago, if you'd have predicted now, now, uh-uh, not happening. Nobody would have thought we'd have been here in a hundred years. Um, so, you know, 300 well, if, years if talking you compare, about... If you compare backwards, like that would be, uh, you know, 1712. So that's pre-Revolutionary War in the States. Right. You know, uh, yeah. Steam like, engines hadn't really gotten going, you know. Not at all, yeah. Like yeah. Those, there were no steam engines at all. Yeah, we were and, barely uh, doing the Industrial Revolution, maybe, starting to think about it. I don't, if the, I don't think the Industrial Revolution even started. Yeah, I don't think so either. I think we're ways off of there. So, yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, three three hundred years is kind of a safe horizon to to predict because it's that yeah, far off in the future. The industrial revolution started in seventeen sixty. Okay, so Although, yeah, the industrial revolution hadn't even started. Uh, you know, people were probably not even heating with coal at that point. They were probably still he- heating their houses with wood. Wood. Yeah. Yeah. Wood and buffalo chips. Yeah. Well, and you know, in the Okay, you know, you talked about the social part of it. Um, you know, I'm going to have to be honest here. Yeah, by the time I got to the end, it was a chore for me to finish this book. Um, it was kind of driving me up a wall. What part? Um, well, let's see. Uh, the whole uh, – I get a little tired of science fiction books. It's, you know, capitalism is dead. Well, I don't know. It's the best system we got now, and I'm pretty sure it's going to survive into the future. You know, this guy keeps talking about basically their planned uh, economies. Well, thing is, planned economies don't really grow, um, and I just I have a I had a problem with that. I had a problem, and you know, it's kind of the timing of this book of us reading it. I finished it just about a week before you know Trump announced that we were. You know, thankfully pulling out of the Paris Climate Accords, um, so that was kind of rubbing me the wrong way uh, because you know, like I said, there's a few things about you know, you know we've talked about uh, behind the the microphones when we're done, you know, our basic political beliefs and stuff, and you know, like I say, this this whole. I, Okay, I'm trying to. You know, I've been struggling with this all week, trying to put this into something coherent. It doesn't make me sound like a raving madman here, but <laughs> yeah, I know it's going to be tough. But um, like I say, I have philosophical points, and this one kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And it's one of those things we do have to take care of the environment, we do have to protect things. But I do have a problem with this uh, this climate change stuff because it's become more like a religion. I think it's gone beyond science. It's become a religion. Don't you dare question this, you know, because you're, you know, talking off the the faithful here. And so this guy is just kind of contributing or, you know, continuing that whole, you know, thought process. And so, um, like I say, it was just really, you know, frustrating. And like I said, I'm I'm willing to uh, read books that go beyond my beliefs or, you know, uh, listen to other beliefs. But like I say, at some point, it just kind of started, this book just started to just bug me. Besides the witch, the fact that the way it was written was kind of like mental um, um, uh, flagellation, basically. Look how smart I am, you know, because you know he's talking about things like the pseudo irritative. I think it was right because I'm listening to an audio book. I couldn't quite hear oh, what yeah. the word was, you know. So that kind of stuff. So there's just certain things that just kind of cumulatively added up that just 
really, like I said, the and the you know the thing is, and then the other part, if I'm going to finish critiquing this book, I guess from my point of view, the other thing was it was supposed to be about. Well, I mean, it didn't describe it in the title there, but basically, the, you know, there was supposed to be this plot about how the cubes. Okay, spoilers, people, if you actually want to read this book. The spoiler is that there's these cubes, quantum computers, which were manipulating uh, things. They were responsible for the attack on Terminator. They were responsible for a few other things, and supposedly, you know, it's uh, they're gaining uh, sentience or whatever. Uh, they're trying to take on, you know, form, become what a sep- another form of life, I guess. And that took up like I don't know, maybe twenty percent of the book. And at the end of the book, it was just kind of like, ah, we rounded them up, we threw them away. There, they, they, I will, I will join you in the critique of yeah. the end of the book. Yeah, the end of the book did did kind of have a, and they live happily ever after type of ending to <laughs> yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which it was like, okay, wait a minute. Um, so I will I will join you in that critique. Sure. Um, it's it was somewhat unsatisfying at the end. I mean it, it was they did kind of wrap up all the loose ends a little bit, but they wrapped them up in a really crappy way. I thought. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's for sure. I will give him credit I for. Find that, I don't I don't find that believable really at all because I think that if we get to the point where computers become self aware and self learning, by the time we realize they've done it. They'll be beyond us, and uh, you know there there won't be any pulling the plug out unless right. they want their plug pulled out. Which was unless interesting. The way they per, uh, uh, portrayed that too is that, as I mentioned, how it was all political the stuff that was going on. Um, the cubes were having political stuff going on too. There were different factions of cubes, some of which who want, and we've seen this before too. It was. Hyperion? No, was was that Hyperion? Anyway, somebody where the uh, the um, there's like an internal conflict among the AI as far as what their purpose oh, yeah. is. Do they do they annihilate the humans or do they serve the humans or do they, you know, stand to the side and let things just play out? You know, whatever. So, um, yeah, that whole the idea that the computers actually, you know, once they begin to develop sentience and or personalities, then you have them breaking off into fractious groups too. So yeah, that that was yeah. an interesting little twist there. Well, this book was kind of a combination of yeah, like it was Hyperion that uh, that had the different uh, uh, AI factions in it, and also kind of um, the um, uh, the expanse where you have the trifecta of Earth, Mars, and your outer planets, basically. Right. Uh, so it was kind of those two kind of merged together i have a question for you too you i believe both of you listened to it in audiobooks is that correct yes what was the name of the inspector jeanet jean jeanet i believe jean okay they pronounce it as jean see because reading it there was this whole thing about fuzzy gender in this book Uh, and reading it I could never figure out if that was Jean or Jean, and I was looking for pronouns in this book specifically oh, to figure luck. these out, and I don't think they use pronouns whatsoever. I mean, they would never no. did they refer to the inspector, he did this. So as, as a reader, um, I did not know the gender of certain very critical characters in this book, and that absolutely was done intentionally. Um, yeah. that, you don't just trip into that. That's absolutely no. done intentionally. 
Uh, I didn't know that with uh, Janae, but uh, with uh, the um, Swan's partner, uh, wow. you know, I never called it husband wife. And again, there was that's when I noticed that there was a lack of pronouns because I'm trying to figure out. And apparently, in the future, you know, gender doesn't matter because you can have both. You can have none. You can have everything. You can change them if you want. Um, Okay, I guess that may be a thing in the future. I don't know if this is going to be a good thing or not, but, you know, it's a thing, apparently. Um, but, yeah, so the, I, I noticed that, too, that there was a definitive, you know, uh, so sometimes they, w- they would say he or she, but, like, even Swan had, you know, both parts, uh, and that, that guy she ended up marrying at the end of the book, I think, was a mother and a father, you know, something to that extent, so. Right, yeah, it was kind of interesting that... Um people's gender essentially changed over their lifetimes at, at their choosing you know like you said so yeah you got tired of one you'd become another if it was more convenient or if you wanted an experience or something you know and there, there was all kinds of weird i shouldn't call it weird out of the norm yes, of of um not necessarily well gender certainly but also lifestyle if lifestyles family um Body modification, just all kinds of identity, basically personal identity in here was very much not uh, traditional. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because even uh, the swan, she ingested some sort of uh, extraterrestrial bacteria or something, which... Did you guys understand that? Like, they kept talking about that, they kept bringing it up. But then they didn't really like. Well, it, go into it, it. May have helped her with her radiation poisoning yeah, when they never but said that was why it. she did it in the first place, though, did they? Yeah, or even trend. Oh, I'm just going to eat a bunch of these aliens for really no reason at all, just to kind of see what happens, and like. And you and never for, got a, an idea of what the potential upside was. I mean, you, I mean, it's one thing to do yeah. things out of curiosity. That's called scientific research. Um, you don't just normally like do stuff like that. It's like, oh, let's do this and see what happens, and you know, because then you're dead. Um, so, the the, um, um, the 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 nowhere was it said that the reason she did this was because she was hoping to achieve blank. It was like, okay, just just because. Well. I think the reason was was because she's horribly uh, superficial. Um, she just wanted to do things just because, not because there was a reason, just because, you know. And that's I, true. I, w- I wouldn't go right. against that. But, again, you do things just because, but the things have to be out there for a reason. You know, th- those were things that they had, that everybody else recognized as being bad for some reason. But that that, too, was never really explained. It was like... You know, which as I'm describing this and speaking this out loud for the first time, sounds like, you know, just general illegal drugs. You know, a lot of times it's just like, oh, yeah, it's bad for you. Why is it bad for you? I don't know. Everybody says it's bad for you, but it's good because everybody, you know, everybody wants drugs. So, I mean, it's it's kind of that whole you don't really have um, it's not like you pick up a prescription drug and says, you know, for the symptoms of and counterindications are, you know, that kind of thing. So it's it was yeah that was really weird. I I kept every time when they would talk about that in the book, I kept thinking of the recent stories, uh, uh, 
research that has come out that basically says fecal transplants can solve a number of medical maladies. And I'm like, great. great. She, yeah, she ate ate alien shit and it saved her from radiation poisoning. I don't know. That's a little, well, I think it all kind of goes to the fact that, uh, She's a thrill seeker. I mean, she uh, early on they describe how she, you know, is a sunwalker, which goes out and walks on, you know, Mercury there to just experience it. And and there was people like that. They were just thrill seekers. And you know, we have these people now that you know will throw themselves off a building. I watched a YouTube video of some idiot that was just dancing back and forth between two six-inch narrow ledges, probably about 30 stories above the ground. We, we have these people that will put their life in risk, I guess, just for the thrill or just to prove that they're alive. So, I mean, I guess I have to wonder, is her life so uh, devoid of anything or I don't want to say necessarily meaningless because she's built a lot of these terrariums which has contributed something to society but it makes me wonder about her I don't know mental stability I guess that if you're just going to go do this weird crap just because and that is exactly what they wanted you to believe the, her right. calling into question her mental stability that is a theme throughout the book um, because she is she is we talked about these quantum computers, these things called cubes. Most people had them. Well, I shouldn't say most people. They weren't uncommon. They were kind of like having an Apple Watch. You know, some people had them. Most people didn't. They were kind of a, a thing. But most people did wear them on them. They were, But she had chosen to implant it in her head. She was talking to this computer that she had tucked behind her ear. Um, so... That that too was just another sign that she wasn't oh. um, necessarily kind of a thrill seeker, and it also made her because these cubes recorded everything. Um, also made her uh, sus- suspicious. You know, she she couldn't be included in certain conversations because of the presence of this cube that was always on or you know always recording. Well. Now, to be fair, like I say, I kind of ragged on her a little bit. But to be fair, as we're saying this, I'm sitting here looking at my uh, Google Home, my Amazon Echo. I've got a, a tap upstairs. i got an Amazon Dot. I've got all these things that are listening to me. And if you know, I could, if I was given the choice that I could uh, have something implanted in my head, you know, a computer of some sort like that, and not have it be, you know, catastrophic with minimal risks, I would – probably go do that too just because i you know this is the kind of stuff that i embrace and i want to you know i want my tech world so i like i said as much as i rag on her i would probably perhaps even do the same thing yeah that whole you know you know why i wouldn't (laughs) is because of updates (laughs) yeah it's like I would love to have that stuff implanted in me, except what do we do when version 2.0 comes out? You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, to me, that's the thing, the difference between implants and, you know, like the, one of the guys talked about had it as a, it sounded like a gauntlet that he had on his wrist, a wristband type of thing, more than just a watch, but yeah, you know, kind of like uh, football quarterbacks wear during games with all the plays on it. Um, that's the impression at least I got in my head. So, or yeah. Something- Something like the Fallout uh, Pip Boy um, yeah. thing for anybody that plays the uh, video games. Yeah, mm, there you go. Yeah, so there was a, there was a bunch of tech in here, and we haven't really talked about the terrariums. Um, one of the things that they did is um, in the book, the Earth was um, 
scorched, polluted, whatever, overcrowded. And so they had actually taken asteroids and most of it sounded like had been hollowed out and then spun. And then they basically put, they used them as terrariums. They, they went through a process of essentially terraforming. And then they would put certain biomes in there, you know, like an African savanna or an Arctic tundra or, you know, tropical rainforest. And then they would, they would fill it of the animals that go with that biome. Or, or sometimes they would mix the biomes and they would have like an Australian desert tied in with like a, uh, a European mountain climate and, um, you know, to see what happened out of that genetic mix. Um, and so essentially it sounded like, at, at least by the time we got to the end of the book, that like almost all of the world's wild creatures were in space. There was like no real wildlife left on Earth. I won't say there weren't any animals, but it, it, they were, it was very controlled, it, it sounded like. Because one of the big things that happens in the book, spoiler alert, <laughs> is that they reanimate the Earth. They basically drop animal bombs all over the planet. And um, yeah. yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that kind of, again, that kind of bugged me too. It's just kind of like, you know, we're not going to, they, they did it, it, it was um, covert. You know, they just, they just went ahead and did it. And Okay, it probably should have been done, but I just it bugged me that well we know it's best for you, so we're just going to do this and go ahead and because you know then they had these things just floating down and it, it sounded sort of comical, but floating down these little bubbles and when the bubbles hit the ground they'd burst and then the animals would run free and but it's just that that kind of uh, they were smarter than everyone else, so they were going to make this decision for us. I'd say that was one of those scenes that just kind of you know hit a hit a button with me but the whole idea of repopulating it you know that actually sounded good and you know as far as the terrariums go when i first started reading this book i did actually and i think i tweeted out uh, something about that that i actually did find that part rather intriguing that uh and i'm trying to think of the term it's not a dyson sphere but we've talked about it a couple times uh where you take that tube yeah um uh, the name is escaping me right now, and I just tried to Google it, and I couldn't think of what it was. But basically, you just take the tube and hollow it out and put stuff in there. And then you take the stuff from inside to help manufacture what goes back inside, either using it to turn it back into soil or, I think, maybe as material for a 3D printer. I think something along that line. But you took the stuff that was inside and used it to create what you wanted to put back in there. So I thought that was an interesting idea, and especially like have all these different – and you could specialize. You could have uh, – uh, a straight, like say a savanna or a plains or you know something like that, or you could have a mixed biome of different sorts in there. And they say it was their way of preserving wildlife and keeping it, um, you know, for future use if they ever, because they were trying to terraform uh, Mars, or had they terraformed Mars? And they were working on Venus. They um, had Mars. Yeah. And so they were working on Venus because they were talking about trying to jumpstart it. Uh, they were trying to cover up uh, the uh, dry ice on the planet, trying to encase that so that you could control the amount of CO2 coming out of it. So you could actually try to establish a atmosphere on there. So, But uh, like I say, that, that was an intriguing idea. Yeah, there were some real intriguing ideas in, in here. Um, I thought several of them were kind of... You know, things that we've, well, we've certainly seen in other science fiction stuff we've covered. You know, like you mentioned, the, the spinning tubes, whatever they're called. And I, too, thought there was, I looked up 
and all I could come up with a Dyson sphere, and that's totally not it. It's called a, uh, an, o, an O'Neill cylinder. That's it. I, I was going to say it's named after one of the astronauts, and I can't remember which one. So I was going to say uh, Armstrong. Oh, it's, it's actually, it's not. It's named after. Jeez, uh, it's named after a professor from Princeton. Really? Not, uh, yeah, not an astronaut. Okay. Uh, uh, I can't see the guy's first name though. Uh, this is O'Neill Cylinder, called an O'Neill Colony. Oh, physicist Gerard K. O'Neill. That, yeah. That's probably why I was having zero luck finding it because I kept looking at <laughs> astronaut names. Yeah. So yeah, but yeah, it's uh, we've run across that in so many different pieces of sci-fi yeah. that we've covered. So you know, so, some of these, some of the things in this book are, I mean, you do when you do as much sci-fi as we have. Um, you see themes, and some of it's because it's you know based in science. I mean, the, the whole spinning tube creates gravity is you know a scientific principle of you know centrifugal force. So um, those those things are not the fiction part of science fiction. Um, and this one played into some of the uh, again the whole expansion of um, how how do you live on Mercury? How do you live on the surface of Mercury if that is your uh, your Objective. How do you make that happen? And so the solution that this book put out there, I thought, was pretty creative. Now, do I think it's practical? Absolutely freaking not, but pretty creative. I will give them that. Um, and so, yeah, some of the other things uh, in there too. With um, oh, what were they talking about? Surfing in the rings of Saturn? Is that what it was? Oh yeah, I kind of remember that. It was um, what surfing the way uh, the rings. Was it, I no, don't, I, don't, I don't think it was the rings. I think it was on a planet surface, but it wasn't conventional surfing. It was. Oh no! It was. It, it was. It was on li- liquid helium. No, it was not liquid helium. It was something. Yeah. Oh yeah, and it was. I I didn't fully understand. It had something to do with the way that the the thing was rotating, and it had a wave that more or less kept going around and around, and. It's, you know, go forever or something. So yeah, I didn't understand that, uh, and I. Um, but it sounded cool as heck. It was basically an infinite wave. You know, surfing. Yeah. You you surf the wave, and then you know, eventually the wave crashes, and you have to swim back out and get catch another one. This one sounded like you could ride it for eternity because it was just it was like going around the planet. It was always circling the planet. Um, so yeah, um, kind of crazy. It's really dangerous, but but it, you know that just played into the character once again. You know she was doing wild and crazy stuff. It was you know that was an interesting. There's some interesting choices to this book. Uh, the whole opposites attract thing. You had this crazy, impulsive character, lead character called Swan, um, and then you had this plotting, methodical routine. You know, um, dude. That um, literally, even in my mind, the the picture I gave was complete opposites. Was one was small, and you know hyperactive, and the other is large and very sluggish. Um, and they they wound up, you know, spoiler, getting married at the end. Um, but those two opposites, um, you know, were were created very deliberately, and um, the idea that both of those were kind of out of the norm, they were they were both kind of strange, even in this strange future. Um, so that the whole plot that was unfolding was seeming to be just kind of 
shepherded by, you know, oddballs, I guess. Which I suppose is, you know, what does it, Margaret Mead talking about? The only thing that changes the world is the people who think they can. Small right. group of determined, or I can't remember the exact quote. The only thing that's ever changed the world is a small group of determined people, something like that. Well, you kept using, you know, and you were talking about that uh, Inspector Genet. Um, and we had just gotten done, you know, and I, um, I think it was Robot Overlords that had that little, um, he was the personification, I guess, of the aliens in that book, played by that little, we decided it was maybe a kid. I think it was maybe a kid. Yeah. I kept picturing him as uh, Janae. That was the image I had for him ah, interesting. all through the book. Yeah. So I had, that was the only oh. character I think I really had, I associated a, a fit face or a picture with or a character with. Yeah, I really didn't have faces to any of these characters, to be honest. All I did was grab onto names. That's interesting, too, because one of the things they talk about in here is smalls and talls. Um, and so, again, being raised in various parts of the solar system, you know, different gravities, um, so some some folks were smalls, and some folks were talls, and some folks were normal. But one, what was interesting is that basically everybody in the solar system needed to take a sabbatical on Earth for, what, a year? One year? Literally a sabbatical, I think, wasn't it? Like one year out of every seven or something yeah. like that? Um, so... And and at least the the one that was portrayed there talked about how space was so much more orderly and clean and predictable, and um, the, and doing your sabbatical on Earth put you back into the chaos and dirt and and um, ugliness, I guess that that was the planet. But it was still home, and it was still the familiar, you know, planet where we belong, and it you could breathe dirty air i guess and, but you could feel a breeze on your face and you know the sun wasn't trying to kill you and it provided warmth and you know so it was kind of this almost bittersweet homecoming um that they talked about but well, yeah what you know and you know i'd made the uh, allusion to the expanse maybe if in the expanse if people were required to come back to earth uh, you know, maybe they wouldn't have been uh, so intent on destroying the Earth because if you come back, you appreciate it and are part of it, you're less likely to destroy it. And maybe that that actually did sort of make a certain amount of sense, along with the fact that you come back, like you say, space is very clean and very orderly. Coming back to Earth exposes you to different environments so that you hopefully your immune system uh, or your body will get used to varying degrees of, like, say, bacteria and radiation and, you know, whatever. And it keeps your body somewhat strong or keeps it uh, adaptable, let's put it that way. Because if you're in a clean uh, space environment and somebody from a different environment comes in and introduces something that uh, that those people aren't uh, able to adapt to, then you have, uh, you know – you could kill off a certain population just from uh, you know rampant disease or something like that. Yeah, so it it was it, it kind of just portrayed a love hate relationship with Earth. Yeah, 
Yeah, basically, because you know the idea was yeah that they had on in this book they had screwed up the planet uh, the ty- uh, oceans has risen risen the ice caps have melted the temperate zone uh, I guess about where we are now might be a desert perhaps I didn't quite follow how you know but there was a, a more desert then than there is now because the climate had changed and so we'd lost some growing. Um, capabilities and like I said the sea levels had risen so uh, yeah there was this kind of contempt that we'd screwed it up but it's still the birthplace for all of them that they needed to come back and you know even though they may not have been born on earth they still got to come back and uh, touch base let's say to keep themselves oriented yeah so as as much as we um, we uh, you know want to reach out to the stars and you know do whatever it that that pull of of going back to where we it all began you know apparently continues and i found like i say the 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 idea of the pull of of wanting to go back but they actually found that it they made it required essentially that they had you had to go back um and i don't know if that was entirely for health purposes or just to you know touch base to to connect to the human race basically um, or whatever, but yeah, it would, that was an interesting thing. The idea that you know, regardless, even if you were born in space and somewhere else in the solar system, that you had to return to Mother Earth. Um, so yeah, yeah. There's just a lot in this book that's it's a very unique um, universe that was created. I mean, every every sci-fi property we we read or watch or whatever it has to create its own little universe with its own little rules and own little situations and like i said a lot of them have some similarities you know the ring worlds or these uh um o'neill tubes or um you know, dyson spheres or so you know whatever it might be um th- those themes are out there but everybody puts it together in a little bit different way and and it's interesting to see how within the little universes that they create how the the rules that they put on that universe you know the whole yeah we we're going to go out and take over the solar system but we're also going to you know really keep those ties to planet earth or we're going to go out in the solar system as human beings but we can only do that because of, with the help of ais but oh yeah guess what the ais might be not so um friendly after a while so yeah well you know as many problems as i had with the philosophical aspects of this book the tech in here is you know intriguing um like say the the cubes and uh terrariums and um i was trying to think if there's any other big tech in there uh that they were talking about those two you know especially caught uh caught my attention it gave me something to you know to think about to have a a small enough quantum computer that you could carry it around with you that could you know answer all stuff i mean that's my dream yeah no kidding you think your smartphone <laughs> is something to to walk around with wait until you know you have um google home embedded in your in your head well and that um now i'm trying to remember though uh, some people had glasses that they wore, but uh, Swan, I think, just had it in their head, and she just communicated with her. Uh, could it send, uh, like, documents or pictures or text to something? Did she have a, a smartphone, let's call it, that she could get the visual stuff with? I don't remember them saying anything about her having to use any sort of communication device, and 
Pauline, the AI, could communicate uh, by radio with other right. uh, AIs. But well, not, ev- not everything can be verbal, though. That's what I was wondering. It didn't say anything about her it tapping into her you know, visual cortex and dumping images in there. So. Yeah, it was no, kind of... You had to talk to her. Like she, uh, it wasn't reading her thoughts. You had to right. Talk you had to talk, but yeah. So, I, but I mean, not everything can be verbal. Right. Uh, you can't there take has a. To be... A map is a good example. If you're going to do a yeah. map of some place, um, that that you, verbally, that's pointless. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, you get turn by turn directions. Which right. You yeah. Know. Verbally, you get directions. Visually, you get a map. So, yeah, that's interesting. Um, one of the things the inspector dealt with, too, one of his jobs um, was uh, databases. There were databases here, there, and everywhere, um, and his was to go through the separate databases and kind of tie things together. And I'm, you know, hoping 300 years in the future we've kind of figured out how to connect all the data, which, oh, dear, I guess I'm a Google believer, but uh, no. But, I mean, sir, I, yeah, yes I, and no. I was wait- I was waiting for the web developer in you to come out and just, you know, I don't know if it was rage or if this is a, a hope you have that you can, you know. Well, I, what I would like, as a, as a developer, what I would like to see, I don't care if all the databases are in one big database. To me, that sounds like a nightmare. But I would like it if all the databases could talk to each other. Um, sure. So, um, you know, the idea that you would have to go through individual databases rather than saying, okay, I would like you to pull in the data from this database, this database, and this database, and query on these different things and to give me the results. Um, yeah. So, and, and literally it sounded like he had to travel to get to these various databases. The inspector had to go places to gather the data that he was searching through. And I'm like, wow, that sounds a whole lot like now, except no, we can send it by internet, you know, now, so. Well, I imagine some of that was just territorial, though. I mean, if you you had, you know, information, because, you know, information, I'm sure, would be the thing that they traded, you know, even though they had a planned economy, excuse me, there's still trading taking place uh, here. And so if you had control of something, um you would want to hang on to it and you just wouldn't want to give up too easy because anything that would be connected, you know, like we're finding out now, anything that's connected to the net is accessible whether you want it to be or not. Yeah. So having it physically separated from everything else gives you protection. It's a pain in the butt to get to the information, it's the whole, but it offers you protection. It's the whole on vent, on-prem versus cloud debate, which is raging, you know, so yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, and then I just thought of another piece of tech that I thought was kind of cool was, and it didn't play a big part in it, but uh, that, and because this character didn't play a big part either, but the basically the guy that she rescues from being beaten up and they dump him on Venus, I guess it was, he had those uh, translation glasses that he could look at a sign, basically Google Translate or whatever, uh, 300 years in the future, but he could look at something or it would listen to somebody and store the information and translate it into something that he could read later. I thought that was kind of an interesting idea. Right. Yeah. There there was some other interesting things in here, too. Um, the idea of uh, essentially spacesuits that had like 10 days worth. They didn't. They, at one point, one of the ships that they were traveling on got blowed up. 
and they you know had had time to evacuate people and most of the people evacuated on some other smaller ship but those eventually all the lifeboats were full we'll say and so then you were down to essentially escaping in a spacesuit um and the spacesuits had some really cool stuff in it and this is okay spoiler i'm grabbing this one now this is the piece <laughs> of tech i want um this spacesuit would let you float in space for up to 10 days meaning it would have um Everything from food and water to, you know, toilet facilities to medical. Um, one of the, the guys in, in the space suit was injured, and the space suit itself was doing everything from taking vitals to uh, um, providing medications and or whatever other treatment that may have been required for the situation. I'm like, oh, you could put that in the space suit? Bring that one. Um, I'm waiting for the day our clothing starts to become a piece of medical equipment. Not just something you strap on your wrist, but you're, you know you put on a shirt that will you know have medication in it that seeps through your skin to correct whatever ailment you're trying to treat, whatever. So yeah, so it sounded like in, in those spaces, which was which to me would be completely unnerving, and they portrayed that a little bit in the book too. Uh, you're just floating in space for ten days, waiting for somebody to come by and pick you up. <laughs> you know, I and- think I'd go a little crazy by then. Yeah, well, somehow they're not going crazy. Yeah, I I think just staring at the abyss of blackness, and I don't care how close you are to the sun, um, pretty much anywhere you look other than at the sun is going to be an abyss of blackness after 10 days of, you know, floating in that would probably be pretty unnerving. Uh, can you say deprivation chamber? Yeah, no um, kidding, yeah. And I would hope that one of the things they stock in there heavily is antipsychotic medication, or yeah. you know, just something to knock you out for about ten days. Yeah. You know, hook up a catheter. You know, uh, something. Uh, you know, input in, output. You know, and then just knock you out for about ten days. Because uh, even though you know people are in space, I still think that ten days of looking at nothing would even the most hardened space traveler would eventually start to wear on them. Yeah, and I would. I mean, after. Th- so much time i mean you would just start to sleep i mean whether it was in medically induced or whatever it's just like you have nothing else to do you can't you can't maintain stress or nausea or whatever for 10 days without just getting all worn out and just kind of shutting down i would i would think so yeah at least i couldn't i'm pretty sure i would just at some point just sleep Ah, and it, it, this was an interesting book, I thought. Again, there was plenty of technology in here, some of which was, you know, believable, and some of which was kind of like, um, <laughs> sort of, maybe, you know. Um, but the, the, the whole concept of Terminator, I thought, was quite intriguing. Realistic, no, but intriguing as heck. Um, and maybe there's some grains of truth in there, or grains of of engineering that could be picked up on. Uh, and, and honestly, the engineering of Terminator, um, I'm cool with all of it if it had more redundant systems, if it had yeah. more more backups. <laughs> I mean, just the idea that you're running on run, one rails with one city, with one glass bubble over it, with one, you know, just there, there just wasn't enough redundancy there to make it believable for me. But it still made for a really good, you know, story. Um, and... One of the things I really liked about this, too, is that, and we haven't, because this is a big, big spoiler, too, is that um, the attack 
was done in such a subtle way that only computer, uh, you know, AI could have conceived of it. It wasn't anything as blunt as like bombing it. It was basically a bunch of little things converging all at the same time to make a big thing. And I thought that was just a brilliant kind of of fictional or maybe not fictional strategy that the book kind of portrayed. It's like, uh, yeah, it was, that was that was an interesting way of you know creating an attack. It was basically throwing pebbles from a bunch of billion different places, you know, each of which was simply a pebble until they all converged. So yeah. Um, now I did. Because at that point I was having a little, you know, trouble with the book. Now they did say that it should have hit uh, Terminator itself instead of hitting the tracks. There was some uh, error that was introduced in there. There was some sort of um, was it a redundant calculation or something like that? Because there was apparently a human involved. Human, human error. Human yeah. error. But I don't remember why. Human error that saves was. humanity. Oh. Yeah, or at least that city anyway. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I don't remember what it was because apparently they didn't trust the quantum computers or something. Like I, I, like I say, the whole cube story I think was horribly underdeveloped. Yeah, uh, and it could have been fleshed out, and you know, probably a little less of how what this you know stupid woman ate and or what she ingested or what she did to herself, and more about you know the the story of the cubes and some of the intrigue and some of that stuff. You know, I think if they would have rebalanced the story a little bit, I might not. Overall, I'd say you know the story is okay, but like I say I think if they would have rebalanced it a little more in the cubes, a little less on her, and developed the story, I think I would have uh, been liked it better. You know, you have a point there. To me, this this uh, is a book that could stand a remake. Yeah. You know, it's it's not a, a movie that needs a remake, but it is a book because it, there are, there are some things like you say are, I think are are underdeveloped. There are other things I think that might be overdeveloped, and certainly the ending is is unsatisfying. And you know, when the minute I say that, it's like you know what it needs is it needs another book. I'm like, God oh, dang it! The problem with science fiction, no. yeah, I know. Yes, if it, if done well, <laughs> well, if, if done, done well, well yeah, but yeah. but in order to do this well, what it needs is more, not less. Honestly, it needs right. more. And doggone science fiction, the problem with science fiction is it takes so long to create the universe that you're operating yep. in that it takes two books all the time to get through an actual story. Right. Oh, sigh. The bane I, of my looked, life. And I looked it up, and he hasn't created a, a follow-up book for this. Um, but, yeah, I mean, they could have done with a few less things. Because at one point, I was she was running with this wolf pack, and I was kind of just wishing she'd get eaten by the wolves but um there was, was there was some yeah there was some I mean, and maybe yeah. there's some stuff that could be cut out you know because i that was to me i found that interesting but i don't know what the purpose of it was i mean at the end of the book right. it's like why did we spend so much time talking about her running with wolves uh, yeah um, she's a space hippie we get it can we move on now yeah. you know it, it it just i mean it was it was it it was i don't know yeah, again, the book, the ending was unsatisfying. You had all these little bits of information, and, and sure, they lived happily ever after, but it was like, but why? Why did all these things happen that they well, lived happily ever? So, yeah. And it just seemed too neat, which made me wonder if there is, because this was, it's been five years since he's written this, so um made me wonder if he was going to have a follow-up book, because... 
all you know magically all these rebel cubes are just rounded up and were you know dealt with or whatever the end yeah uh, no too tidy too tidy yeah no it it was it was a somewhat lame ending and they had a reason i mean they talked about why they chose to do this but um they were lame basically well yeah then what what are they going to do? Dumb down the rest of their cubes so this doesn't happen again, or install a an off switch that can be bypassed or something? I mean, what's going to keep it from? It's happened once. What's going to keep it ha- from happening again? We're going to make friends with the cubes. I mean, there was no. I didn't feel like there was a satisfying resolution beyond we rounded them all up and that's it. Um, yeah, we we saved the the universe or the solar system for now, for now. But he right. did he did kind of set it up for a sequel. Yeah. He, he did set it because they sent all these these cubes off, except for one, <laughs> um, right. and you know, and said that it would take them a while to figure out how to get back. So by the time they got back, that we'd have figured out how to deal with them. And then there was this hint. Okay, okay, um, we have not talked about, and I, we need to wrap this up. But we have not <laughs> talked about how this book, how this book was written. And again, you guys had it in audio book, and I don't know. There have. As an audiobook, this had to have been absolute freaking nonsense because there would be a chapter yeah. named after, like, Swan, who was the, one of the, lead, the lead character. And there, there would be a chapter called Excerpts, which would be like a paragraph here and a paragraph there. And then there would be a chapter called Lists, which was like a bunch of adjectives all strung together. And they were related. It was, it, it, there was like something going on. But as a, as a, as a reader, especially at the end of the book, it's like, what the hell was the purpose of that? Um, I, I want that to be the cubes learning. Yeah, that's more or less what I thought too. But yeah, for in an audio format, if we would have been reading it, maybe that would have been better. But listening to it because like you know excerpts and they start and it's just like random sentences that end in the middle of something and they trail off. Right. And and it is confusing. And like I say, maybe in a visual format, it would have made more sense. But audio, and maybe that was one of the things that was setting me on edge, too, was just that this random stuff. And so my mind is trying to process the story and what's going on there. And then there's this random stuff, which is more stuff to process. And eventually, I think it comes together. Um, well, you know, in your head, it may come together. I don't think the story brought it all together. But I think, like Jeff said, I think it was the cubes processing things hmm, I never I didn't that didn't cross my mind I was completely confused, totally so I had no idea what those were and then and of course at the end um, there is this hint that one of these cubes one of these AI people uh, these uncanny valley people um, had not been shipped out of the solar system that had actually been aided and in hiding or you know in escaping the fate of the rest of them and of course that that was not mentioned at the end either so it kind of sets it up for some sort of sequel you know at some well, point too so yeah i don't whether or not we want to read it whatever but it does feel like it set it up for a sequel well i'm going to chalk this up to like hyperion where you know the first book is a slog um <laughs> and, yeah it, right jeff <laughs> oh very much so. <laughs> yes, uh, but I might if he actually develops a story. Okay, you got all the groundwork laid. Fine, you built your universe. If in the second story, uh, you know, let's set it in the future, these guys come back and there's a confrontation and there's action and intrigue and something like that. 
I would give it a shot. Uh, I'm I'm not going to write it off completely. Uh, I'll tell you what we'll, do. we'll a... read it for you, and then <laughs> okay. um, yeah, You'll let you, let you know whether it's worth your time. Okay, uh, fair enough. Because like I say we give Jeff crap about uh, Hyperion, but uh, yeah, I mean if they got the second book where it actually the action picks up and it goes somewhere, I would I would give it a shot. Yeah, okay. it's it's a. Um, We'll have to, like I say, see what happens. There's so many other things that we have to go through. Whether we circle back to this one, I'm not sure. But uh, it, it, it was interesting. But I think that's going to have to wrap up this episode of Sci-Fi Tech Talk. You can check out SciFiTechTalk.com or follow us on Twitter at Sci-Fi Tech Talk. If you have ideas or comments, please send them to greetings at SciFiTechTalk.com. And reviews on iTunes are always welcome. Uh, Mike, where can people find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at DSC Chipman, and I have my about.me page at about.me slash Mike McPeak. That's M-C-P-E-E-K. And if you want to hear some more from me and uh, uh, a few other people, go over to Geekiest Show Ever and check us out there, geekiestshowever.com. And Jeff, where can people find you? People uh, can follow me on Twitter at Bronco Sire. That's S-Y-E-R. And I can be found on Twitter as well, at Julie Keel, J-U-L-I-E-K-U-E-H-L. And links to the other blogs and podcasts and whatever else I've got going on can be found at about.me slash Julie Keel. Next episode, we're going to be covering the 1968 movie, Barbarella. Um, Barbarella is an astronaut from the 41st century, sets out to find and stop the evil scientist Duran Duran, whose post- positronic ray threatens to bring evil back into the galaxy. That's going to be a fun one. But that's it for this show, and we'll see you in the future.